Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for braving the cold. January, Florida, crazy, right? Some of you guys like that kind of stuff. I'm like, why'd you move to Florida? You know? Um, if this is your free guys' first time here, I wanted to say welcome. Um, it's always uh, interesting when you step into a new church context for the first time. It's, uh, it's kind of like coming into somebody else's family for family dinner, um, and they all seem to know each other and gel and stuff, and, and you're like just like sitting at the table, and you're like... Am I, am I allowed to be here? Like, like, yes, you are absolutely allowed to be here. We want you here. We want you to connect here um, if this is the kind of community that God has for you. If not, there are so many wonderful, great biblical communities in this area. Um, so if whether this is your first time here or you've been journeying with us for a while, you uh, may have forgotten that we have been in the letter of First Timothy uh, and we took a break for the Christmas season. And so tonight we are reentering the letter of First Timothy. This is a part of what we do as a church. We have been journeying for about 15 years uh, through uh, the story of the scriptures, starting in Genesis, kind of working our way um, at a really, really thoughtful pace. Um, so tonight we continue on in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you want to open up your Bibles, um, I'm going to be using my scripture journal in the ESV, uh, and we're going to be hanging out here tonight. But because we have not been journeying together through 1 Timothy for over a month, uh, we thought it would be helpful for us to do a touch base and kind of a recap of everything that we've kind of covered up so far, uh, but kind of at a high level because there's been a lot of messages so far. So with that in mind, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, who was an early church planter within the early church, meaning that he would go to different cities, states, and go and plant new church, start new churches in those areas. And he took along with him a disciple for many of them, a, uh, a guy named Timothy. And Timothy was his beloved disciple. He took him as kind of a, a young man and continued to disciple and pour into him for years. And so at this point in the journey, uh, Paul has and Timothy have been journeying together for about a decade. But Paul is now imprisoned in Rome for his faith in Jesus, and he sends Timothy because he hears a word of some really scandalous stuff that has been taking place in another place, the city of Ephesus and within the church there. Now, he sends Timothy there, who is his beloved disciple, because this is his beloved church. He loves the church in Ephesus. He spent three years of his life there. After planning the church, he spent three years there. Uh, according to what we know in the scriptures, this is the longest time that Peter or that Paul ever spent in one area for any length of time since starting to follow after Jesus. So he could he invested so much of his heart and soul into building up and shepherding and caring for this church. So when he hears that this church is having some issues, he's not calling in the B squad. He is sending his best, his beloved disciple to Ephesus to go shepherd them, guide them uh, into life, light, and freedom. So he sends his beloved disciple to this beloved church because the church doesn't have a little problem. It has a real problem. They have within this church grown a festering cancer within it. Because what's been going on is that there's been a group of false teachers, individuals who are likely at one time elders within the local church. And instead of using their influence to make much of Jesus, they've been using their influence to make much of themselves. They were building up their reputation, their wealth, their prestige. And they were likely targeting wealthy, immature Christians because they could easily be manipulated and swindled out of their wealth. Not good dudes, right? Like these dudes were bad news and they were corrupting the church. 
So, so what we have done so far is we've unpacked many of Paul's encouragements and commands to Timothy on how Timothy should shepherd this church in the midst of all this difficulty and frustration. But we could be tempted if we read this letter uh, at first glance into thinking that it's almost like just one long correction. It's just one long uh, list of all the things that this church is doing wrong that they should be doing differently. But if we were to do that, we would be wrong because what we discover when we read this letter is Paul is writing with a singular focus to Timothy and how he should shepherd this church, to shepherd this church into what he calls in chapter one, the aim of love, the aim of love. The entire thing is aimed towards love, demonstrating love for one another within the family of God so that the world outside of those walls would see a different kingdom represented, a different culture come alive. Now, you might remember that we have gone through this letter and we have covered and hit on a number of like things that we could just call like awkward passages, right? Uh, topics that, uh, that Paul is unpacking that from our perspective in our cultural context seem either weird or just like almost downright inappropriate at times. But if we truly believe that the scriptures are the perfect voice of God made known to us, which as a church is what we believe, then our job is to discover what is going on in this context. What's the difference between theirs and ours? What's the heart? What's the underlying principle that points us to the beauty of the gospel so that our lives, our minds, and our hearts could be transformed by its beauty? Because ultimately, we're not called to try to make the Bible agree with us, but to pray that our hearts and our minds would be softened to joyfully trust, follow, and believe God even when it doesn't always make sense to us or the world around us. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17 tonight. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. You guys get that, right? Okay, cool. Let's keep going. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent elements. Totally makes sense. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So on first reading, this seems like it's another one of those awkward passages. Essentially, he is discussing spiritual leadership within the local church. And specifically, what does it mean to provide honor, protection, and accountability to elders? Now, personally, as an elder of a local church, uh, this makes me feel a little bit more awkward than usual uh, because it kind of like on first glance made me feel like, oh, feels like a little bit of a conflict of interest, me unpacking this passage, right? But as I began to study it, 
praying through it, having conversations about it, I began to see such beautiful gospel clarity that's meant to inspire godly and appropriate love for those who are called to love the church. But it doesn't make it not feel awkward at the beginning, right? So what makes this awkward? What makes a passage like this about spiritual leadership awkward is that it flies in the face of where our culture is with much of its understanding of leadership because there are two competing cultures and two competing ways that we can view leaders, oftentimes in our culture in our day and age. We either are um, tempted towards immediate suspicion, especially to those leaders that we disagree with or don't like, or we are tempted towards idolization and uh, making them into being gods because we like them, because we think highly of them, that they can almost do no wrong. Now, since the Watergate scandal decades ago, there have been continual reckonings of leadership spaces in the world of politics, business, entertainment, sports, universities, and within the church. Where leaders have faced a public reckoning for spaces of darkness and sin being exposed. Usually it's to do with one of three things, money, sex, or domineering and controlling behaviors, or the cover-up of those kind of behaviors and others for the sake of organizational protection. So these continual reckonings that we see when we're scrolling through social media on the reg, right? Have continually and understandably led to a place of suspicion towards individuals who are in leadership, say individuals who are on stages and quickly discarding individuals at the first sign of accusation. Now couple that with a culture that has become more and more focused on the concept of self-governance. I get to define myself. I get to say who I am, what is good for me, and anyone who tries to tell me what to do is impeding on me and is ultimately becomes the villain of my story. As well, the narrative focus has been one where then if those are realities, then the problem is that I don't have the power. Somebody else has the power. The powerful people keep making these terrible mistakes. So the problem must be power. Leaders have power, which is why they're able to do such awful things. So I, give me power and I'll do better. And if we remove their power, then they can't affect damage. And that kind of makes sense, right? Now you put all these realities together and it makes sense why our culture's understanding of leadership is often moves us towards suspicion. Unless leadership proves itself to kind of back me up in my personal pursuit of whatever I want. In other words, good leadership in a lot of our culture has become leadership that protects the concept of you do you. I get to define me. I get to be what I am. But all of this goes with an underpinning that the problem is power. The original sin is power. But what if, what if power isn't the problem? What if the scriptures are right? The real problem isn't surface level and it's not external. It's here. It's the heart condition of every human being. Bent on defining good and bad on our own terms. Willing to do whatever it takes to see our desires realized then self-governance can't possibly be the ultimate answer because it doesn't fix the problem, which is our hearts. So we need, in that case, a different way, a different culture, a different answer than what the culture around us says. Now, on the other hand, there are defenders of certain leaders who will continue to give passes to sinful leadership. And then in that case, the problem is the doubters, the haters, and true accountability is never offered up. Now, it makes sense 
where our culture comes from in both of those spaces. But for those of us who follow after Jesus, we are called to primarily not think like Americans or conservatives or progressives. What we are meant to do with every aspect of life is be influenced by a different culture, the culture of the kingdom of heaven. We're meant to view leaders, not as devils or gods, but because that's what the world around us says. We are called to renew our minds and our hearts to the culture of the kingdom. Now, the culture of the kingdom of heaven, we see unpacked within the message of Jesus and the gospels. And in there, we discover that the kingdom began to break through into planet death as King Jesus stepped into the backwoods of the Roman colony of Israel, preaching that a new kingdom was coming and that anyone who turned away from their sin back to God could become active participants in the kingdom's arrival. And then, And then he demonstrates that this kingdom's understanding of just about everything is upside down from the world around him. The way they thought about everything, including power and leadership. Power and leadership, according to Jesus, are not tools meant to be used to build ourselves up or to just ensure that we can get our own way. See, in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of heaven, power is used to protect and care for those who are in need. Power is a tool to serve, not to be served. And Jesus demonstrated this perfectly with his life, right? We see this on the pages of the gospel over and over and over again, the way that he lived with his disciples, the way that he showed them, you want to, you want to know what it looks like to lead? Serve, wash their feet. He serves with compassion and care and a shepherd's heart. Now, ultimately, Jesus demonstrated this on the cross as he used his power as God to lay down his own life, taking our sin, our brokenness on himself so that we could be made new, so that we could become citizens of the kingdom, so that our hearts and our minds would be renewed by him, so that we could come from death to life, so that we could be adopted into his forever family. Isn't that good news? See, the culture of the kingdom is marked by leading through serving, bringing light to the spaces of darkness, repenting when we fall down, offering grace and forgiveness in the midst of our imperfections. Which brings us back to our passage and our main idea that we're going to be unpacking as we go through tonight, which is simply this, that the church is responsible to holistically love those who are called to holistically love the church. The church is called to love those who are called to love the church well. Verse 17, let's go back to it. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So, the first way that Paul clarifies how the church should care for the elders is to honor faithful elders. So he uses this phrase, he calls it double honor. So double honor, what's double honor? Now, double honor is a lot like, um, it's a lot like at Taco Bell, um, uh, a, like a cheesy five-layer burrito, you know? Oh, guys, mm, I know. Nah. So good, so bad. 
so good. Okay, so with a cheesy five-layer burrito, there's all this stuff inside the initial burrito, okay? And you guys can go and like check me on, fact check me on this later. Um, but it's, it's a burrito filled with all kinds of my version of goodness in it. And then what they do is then they make it even more magical by then taking another tortilla and adding the, the, the finest quality of cheese sauce imaginable, putting the burrito in that and wrapping it all together. I, I just put on the app to grill it as well, and it's pressed. Mm, so good. See, the, the first layer of honor is all the stuff that you might expect when you think about when, when you're honoring somebody, when you honor somebody, when you honor a parent or a mentor or a friend or a coworker. Like it's when you are doing the, those things, you're res- bringing respect and affirmation and building up those individuals, speaking highly of them. That is a way to honor. But then he's using this phrase, double honor. So that second layer, that second tortilla filled with cheesy goodness, what's that about? Well, what we're going to get to with verse 18 is he is getting to what it means to financially provide for elders. And specifically, he mentions for those who are teaching. And so we get his understanding in verse 18. And he uses two quotes, the one that you guys laughed at because it makes so much sense that it was just so obvious to all of us. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Totally makes sense. And the second one, then the labor deserves his wages. So I know those sound weird and it doesn't really make sense to us, but it does when we understand where Paul's coming from. Remember, he's a Jewish scholar, a Hebrew scholar. He is the, an expert of Torah. And so he knew to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. The scroll of Deuteronomy is one of the first five books in uh, the Hebrew Bible. And within that, it talks about all of God's desires, like different wisdoms that he gives, case law that he gives for how the people of Israel were called to live. And so he, is, he makes two citations here, one from Deuteronomy 24, the other one from Deuteronomy 25. So first let's hit on the one from Deuteronomy 25, and it's about the oxen. So oxen, the ox, what does he say? He says, the oxen you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain because that totally makes sense in our agrarian culture, right? But in their culture, a ox was essentially an ancient version of a plow. So you would put, you would put a yoke over the oxen and they would be carrying a plow behind them and they would, and they would, uh, they would plow land or they would thresh wheat. Now, Oxen are different than tractors and plow systems that we have because oxen aren't created in a manufacturing facility with John Deere on the title, right? They're created by God. God creates these things. He creates animals. And so what he's getting at is what God is getting at in Deuteronomy is don't muzzle ox when they're treading grain because this wouldn't allow the ox to be able to take a bite of food while it's working. Now, if an ox every once in a while is taking a bite of food while it's threshing the wheat, do you think that would cut down productivity a little bit? Yeah, right. Makes sense. I'm not a farmer, but makes sense that that's exactly what would happen, right? But see what God wants the people of Israel and what Paul is getting at as well is that, that even the way that they should treat animals should be with an understanding that they were created by God. So they, they're, they're not tools. They are meant to be seen with compassion. So respect the created order, treat them with compassion, partner with them, but don't treat them like they're just the tool because they're created by God. That's pretty cool, right? 
Now, the second one is a bit more on the nose to ensure that um, that a day laborer gets his wages. Now, for this, he's he's uh, riffing on Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 15, where it says this, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, where he is one of your brothers or whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. See, God sees every one of the humans he creates as image bearers of himself. Image bearers who need to be cared for and to be seen. They are not tools. Unfortunately, it's usually the as he cites two types of people groups here, it's usually the, impo- the impoverished and it's usually the foreigners who are quickly oppressed and dehumanized. And from this, we see God clearly hates that. Now, Paul is not attempting to compare the difficulties of being in either of those categories of oppression and that of being an elder. He's not making that comparison that the same way that's hard, we have the same hard. No, it's not that. What he is drawing a comparison to, though, is that both can be dehumanized and seen as tools. So two things can easily happen in the way that humans often think towards leaders. We can either, and I'm super guilty of this, uh, my entire career working at Disney, it's been so easy to see managers this way at work. I can either build them up as gods because they're so awesome, or we can tear them down as devils, acting like they're not a real human. Either way, what we instinctively begin doing is we stop seeing them as humans and stop seeing them as tools. Isn't that what we do with government officials? Isn't that what we do with CEOs? Isn't that what we do in all manners? And so when Paul talks about double honor for elders here, he is not saying to idolize pastors. But what he is saying is for the ones who are serving faithfully, they should be honored for their faithful service and be seen as human beings. That you'd acknowledge that they could use some encouragement. That you'd acknowledge that they have, that they have financial needs. Now, I mentioned this, but personally, I can tell you that as a pastor and as the pastor of this community for the last three years, I have felt so honored beyond anything I could have hoped for, imagined, or definitely deserve. Uh, organizationally as a church, uh, this church takes care of my family and I. Now, we're not gonna become a rich family with me working for this church or, or hopefully any church, but our needs are met. But more than that, we are shown such love and care in this community. It's unbelievable. Personally, I have always felt personally just seen as a human being in this biblical community. And so for that, I'm just really grateful. I'm so grateful. Um, Not that every decision I make or every thought I have is brilliant or perfect or the right one, but that even in the midst of that, just to see I'm a human, it's honor beyond anything I can imagine. And so that goes back to the church is responsible to holistically love those who are called to holistically love the church. Now, verse 19, this is when it gets a little bit stickier. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or two or three witnesses. 
Now, in our cultural moment, the first part of this might sound like organizational protection. Do not admit a charge against an elder. Is it possible that that verse has been misused and corrupted? Yes. Does this mean that this verse is ugly? No. Instead, that is the furthest away of what Paul could have possibly been saying here. In fact, I know it because read the entire letter. That's not what he is getting at. He is not getting at this idea of organizational protection, this idea of infallibility for those who are in leadership. What he is saying is protect all elders from unfounded accusations. Now, this is just a reality, right? Those in spaces of leadership have greater visibility. They stand on stages, they're in meetings. They're, they're the ones that you know to go to. Now, oftentimes accusations could be made about an elder that will eventually over time be proven to be true. Oftentimes accusations can be made that can be proven to be false. Now, we live in an American judicial system that from its, from its uh, beginning valued this concept of innocent until proven guilty, right? This idea that we're going to lean into the concept of prove it. We're not going to start from the concept that you are automatically guilty. Now, in our world of quick media and snap judgments, it can easily become and feel like the opposite. An accusation can tank a career or family before evidence to verify it has even been produced. But then because our news cycles move so fast before, before actual process has happened, a verdict already comes out in the form of accusations. Now, is that always the case? No. Are there, are there plenty of reckonings that have occurred in which due process happened and it was absolutely verified? For sure. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He is talking about when unfounded accusations are made, make sure that you have due process, which is what he's getting at. Now in the ancient world, due process looked like a lot of eyewitness testimony. Again, they didn't have forensic evidence. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch was not called in with his powers of deduction to figure out what happened and who done it. So eyewitnesses were pretty crucial for how to figure out if, somebody killed somebody else's donkey or if somebody stole somebody else's property. Like, like those are two examples in, the, in Deuteronomy. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> hence why Paul is riffing off of Deuteronomy 19 right here when he says, no accusation should be made within the nation of Israel without two or three witnesses. So when Paul is saying to Timothy here, do not admit a charge against an elder with, unless two or three witnesses have come forward, what he is not doing is issuing a hard and fast rule. What he is not doing is saying that if I, Danny, were really, really good at robbing banks, but you somehow figured it out, that you need to wait around until somebody else figures it out and brings that accusation as well for me to be confronted about it. That's not what he's talking about. It's also not talking about if you have an ax to grind against me and then you find out that uh, somebody was robbing a bank and you're like, oh, this would be the perfect one to pin on Danny. And then you're like, hey, will you lie with me? We both want Danny out of here. He did it right. Yeah. Now we have two witnesses. First Timothy, all good. Fire him. <laughs> See, the, the principle that Paul is speaking of here is to ensure that due process happens not just unfounded accusations. Unfounded accusations can, dis can unnecessarily destroy families, lives, reputations, and especially the unity of the church. And that's what Paul's trying to protect here. 
which is why we need to always prioritize claims with love, care, and seriousness. To verify and prove claims are made to ensure that the whole truth is brought to the light. This isn't about organizational protection. It's not about protecting any one individual. It is about it is about what it looks like to ensure that due process happens. And in their culture, it's two or three witnesses. In ours, there's other mechanism and levers and accountability structures in place, both within our local church and in other spaces as well. See, the multitude of evidence that Paul is pointing at here is to ensure that love is going to be demonstrated in the right way for the elder, for the accuser, for the church as a whole, and most importantly, for the gospel. See, the church is responsible to holistically love those who are called to holistically love the church. And so if the church realizes that, that, that an elder is not living in the way of Jesus, the best way to love them is to make sure that the truth is exposed. So it's not protect an elder at all costs. It's protect against unfounded accusations. And we, we know that because Paul continues at how serious he's taking this in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul clearly takes unrepentant elders seriously. I mean, after all, unrepentant elders are literally the reason why Timothy is receiving this letter and why he's even in the city, right? These individuals are not repenting of the fact that they have been doing some broken, shady stuff in the background. And so Timothy is there to bring this to light. So what Paul is saying here is to rebuke unrepentant elders publicly. Now, that sounds harsh, right? But know this, this isn't flippant or quick. This is what happens when the elders have verified the claim to be true. That, yes, Danny, you absolutely robbed that bank. And so if I'm confronted by other elders and they're like, hey, you absolutely, we we got some, we did did due process, we figured it out, we know for a fact you're the bank robber. And then now my response could be to repent or it might be to say, I love robbing banks. I'm glad you find out I love, I'm really good at robbing banks. You're not gonna stop me from robbing banks. I will always rob banks in your face. That would be one response, right? The other response that I could live in would be, I don't rob banks. How can you accuse me of robbing banks? I I would never rob a bank. Uh, Any claims against me is fake news. That's not me. But, If it's been proven and I have been confronted, then I am now absolutely unequivocally living in unrepentance. And at that point, I have no business shepherding. At that point, I have no business doing anything except coming to Jesus. So as the shepherds of our church, the elders' responsibility in that moment would be display to the church that unrepentance is not the way of Jesus. Hence why Paul is saying to bring in front of all, make sure that everyone is fully seeing the brokenness, to to verify to the church, to the entire community that no one is above God's law or his desires, that everyone is accountable, that elders are meant to be examples, whether it's in their righteousness and follow me as I follow Christ or in their repentance when we have strayed into the darkness. 
And do you see, do you feel this, that even here in this passage that like maybe like when I first read it, I was like, ooh, that's sticky. But even here, we can still see that the aim of Paul is love. He wants to love. So the elders are called to demonstrate love for an unrepentant elder in the entire community by displaying it is not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that these false teachers are in your midst. It's not okay that they've been swindling your money. It's not okay that they've been manipulating you. It's not okay. It's not okay. See, this is how the church loves. The church is responsible to holistically love those who are called to holistically love the church. But then in the next verse, he mentions the presence of all, but then he moves on into the presence of God, the father, Jesus, and the elect angels. So what he's doing here is he is qualifying that this does not give anyone a license to have an ax to grind. That if you are looking for vengeance and revenge, then you just do these these steps and then you can have your way. This isn't about conspiring together against somebody you disagree with. This isn't about boardroom drama. What he is pointing out is that all of this connects to the spiritual realm. That every bit of this that you might think like, why is this even here? Like, why is this relevant to us today? Why are we even preaching on this tonight? Because what he is saying is that God in the entire kingdom is keeping watch. So make sure that your process is not clouded with prejudice or partiality. Ensure that a process is, it's enforced and it is born out of love for all involved so that even, even, even if it is brought in front of all, it's out of a heart of love and restoration, not about, not about chastising, not about judging, not about punishing. It's about displaying genuine love with grace and truth. Now that's a big deal. Because again, these false teachers, I would imagine Paul and Timothy, if you would have been around to ask him, like, how, lo- how much love do you feel towards these false teachers? Probably not a lot, right? Like, they're probably not excited about these guys. They might have wanted to just, like, go off the rails on them. But Paul is encouraging Timothy and by extension, the entire church to respect a process, to love them by calling them to repentance, not through two things he mentions here, through prejudice or not through prejudice. And he says, not through partiality. Either of these realities, I have already determined my verdict or I like this guy. So I'm going to, I'm going to look the other way or I don't like this guy. So I'm definitely going to look that way. It's not that. Do nothing out of partiality or prejudice. Instead, out of genuine concern for their hearts and souls. That's the only reason why Paul would write this. Because the church is responsible to holistically love those who are called to holistically love the church. So then he says, verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So now he kind of turns this to Timothy in particular, like he's really focusing in on him here. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So he's talking about Timothy, keep yourself pure. And by extension, the opposite of these things are things that would make him unpure. And so the laying on of hands, what he's getting at here is to, is that is the prayer posture of affirming new elders. And so what he is saying here is don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in rushing the process of affirming new individuals to becoming elders. And the reason for that 
is that you want to see what they're really like. You want to ensure that you're not just trying to affirm new elders because you're like, they're so good at math or they're so good at teaching or they're so good at counseling. It's not about the talent. It's not about the charisma. It's about the character. Do they have the character to shepherd a biblical community? Have they been walking with a Jesus in a way that says, follow me as I follow Christ? And so then he mentions taking part in the sins of others. Now that's a phrase that can have a multitude of applications, right? I mean, how are the, there's so many different ways we can participate in the sins of others, whether it's um, through sins of omission, uh, protection, cover up, or by actually engaging with them in the midst of their sin. They're like, oh, Danny, you rob banks? I've always wanted to, can I do it? Yeah, absolutely, let's go rob banks. We'll do it in private, it'll be great. Timothy shouldn't be doing that according to Paul because that's not love. It is not love to cover up. It is not love to join in. It's not love. Don't do it. It's foolishness. It's sinful. It's broken. And then Paul says, the one that I'm sure means the most to you and has the most clear applications, no longer drink only wine, but a water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Isn't that such an odd phrase to be in here, right? Like you study this and you're like, this doesn't feel like it fits in here. Like somebody add this later, it's in parentheses. What's up with that even, right? Now, it's worth noting, this is no longer considered to be sound medical advice for stomach problems, right? But it is to, but most scholars believe that this is in here because there were many within their cultural context that, that viewed alcohol in one of two ways. They either viewed alcohol in a way of absolute indulgence. I can do whatever I want. Even within the church, this idea of God's grace is sufficient for me. So therefore I can just keep on sinning, which is bad. Or on the other end, it's a version of asceticism, this idea of withdrawal, of abs- abstaining from all of these earthly pleasures. And if you do that, that makes you more spiritual and more holy. And it's likely that the false teachers would have fallen into that camp. So from what we can understand here, Timothy seems to have been drinking only water during this season. And the reason for that, we could assume is because of his witness to the church. He wants them to know that he is pure, that he is witnessing to them effectively. But Paul is saying to Timothy here, and you see this with like such friendship and like genuine care, Timothy, that's not the stuff that's going to keep you pure. Go ahead and use this method, the best that we know, to take care of this medical issue that you have. And so he's telling Timothy not to give in to the peer pressure, to abstain from drinking, believing that it's going to somehow make him impure. Instead, be truly pure. And he gives two ways. Don't participate in the sins of others. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And I just love it because you see their friendship. You like see how much he really cares. Like that in this, in the middle of this, he like stops to say, hey, I, I'm worried about your stomach. Like I, you seem really sick. It's kind of nice, right? It's nice when a friend checks in on you. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here Paul finishes with one sobering thought and one really, really, really cool, hopeful thought. So the first, the sobering thought, he says that sometimes you are conspicuous. It means it's, it's clearly known, okay? So he says, sometimes you immediately know when someone is living in sin. Like it's so obvious. Like, like, like Danny, you're not even wearing a mask when you're robbing the bank. Like, come on, dude. Um, You immediately know that they're living in sin. Now for others, for others, 
the sin lays in waiting. For some, the process and not being hasty to affirm elders, the sin's gonna become pretty evident pretty quick. For others, you might affirm them as elders. You might already think highly of them. You might have bought their book and read it. And then this, the darkness is discovered later. Maybe it's been lying dormant. Maybe it was intentionally hidden. Maybe the, the temptation didn't start just yet. In other words, what Paul is telling Timothy is you don't always know what you don't know right now. You don't know. You don't always know. You don't always know what's in anyone's heart. You don't always know. You don't know what's happening in their life. You don't know. This is why as a church, our elders, um, side note, take really seriously what it means to live in the light. Uh, Inviting one another into spaces of accountability in our lives. um, Giving permission to one another to call out spaces of potential darkness. And honestly, it's, it's meant a lot to me because there have been I mean, godly men and women throughout the decades and centuries who have fallen away. And I can't pretend that I am better than they are, right? I can't assume that I'm more spiritual or more like Jesus than they are. So I need, to, I need that light shown on my life. And so he's saying here that sin is cancerous. He's saying here that it cannot remain hidden forever though. But then he says a hopeful message. He says, neither can the light. God's work cannot maintain hidden forever. Sometimes it's conspicuous. Sometimes you see the goodness and you're like, wow. But good works also are revealed over time. It's like the mustard seed of the kingdom bursting forth in faith into our planet of death. And that's the light. This love is what this entire section that we've been reading about tonight is about. Demonstrating authentic, holistic love for one another. Seeing the humanity in one another. Seeing that that for all of us who have been adopted into the forever family of God, we're surrounded by brothers and sisters. That's really good news. And so for the church, this means not looking at its leaders primarily or firstly with eyes of idolization or suspicion. Instead, for the church to look at its spiritual leaders, pray for them and see them as examples of godliness and the Spirit's work in their lives and, vulner- and pray for them to have vulnerability in, the mi- in God's grace in the midst of their imperfections. And for those of us who are elders, it means to take seriously the potential for darkness and sin to invade our stories and to be drawn to cling desperately to Jesus day by day because I want to go the distance in this. I want us to go the distance in this together. Because for the elder, we are called to protect and to shepherd and to love the church that God has entrusted to us. Even if that means protecting it from one another. Because all of this is rooted in the aim that is love. See, this is what it looks like to live and demonstrate what the kingdom of heaven looks like. See, the kingdom of heaven is meant to call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And what I want to invite us to do right now is I want to invite us into a time of just reflection. I mean, obviously, a lot of the stuff that we covered tonight uh, may not feel directly relevant to you and your story. Um, 
But what I want to do is I want to invite you all to just kind of close your eyes and then put your, your hands open on your lap right now, just as like a posture of openness before God. And what I wanted to invite us into tonight is a space of just inviting, as the psalmist would say, to invite the spirit of God to reveal any wayward part in you to bring those things to light, to help you to surrender those before God. Are there spaces in your life right now where you are not living in the light? Where you are hiding in the shadows, afraid of being discovered? Where you're shielding yourself from the conviction of the spirit? Where you've been hiding in the bushes trying to stay as far away from the loving embrace of your heavenly father as possible? Are you unwilling to listen to the voices of those who might have tried to bring genuine love and care for you and a desire to be restored? So I wanna invite us to take a minute and just bring that before God. Ask him whether you feel like you have something on your mind or not right now, just ask him, father, is there anything in my life right now that needs to be exposed to your light? invite each of us right now if there's something that God might have exposed to you I want you to just raise up your hand whatever it is no explanation bring it before the Father there's spaces in your heart right now that you are not living surrendered spaces of darkness, spaces where the enemy has been drawing us away from you, spaces where we've been shielded or desired to self-protect or didn't or have disbeliefs and doubts towards you, a desire to do things our own way, like our father Adam. But Lord, we have been made new by the second Adam, your son Jesus. 
And in him, there is no question that it is finished, that we are yours, that you have called us your own, that we have the spirit of God dwelling within us, being our seal of salvation until the day of Christ Jesus, that we are yours. We can't run it. We can't outrun it. We can't outdo it. We can't out earn it. We are yours. And so, Lord, whatever sin we are bringing before your throne right now, Lord, would you help us to believe that you have cast it into the sea. You see it as far away from us as the east is from the west, points that never meet. We are yours and you are ours. You are good in the midst of our brokenness. So Lord, I repent of the spaces of brokenness within my own heart where I want to do things my own way. And I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room right now that you would help them to do the same, to truly repent, to not just confess, but to turn away from and to return home to you, our good and faithful God. Thank you for Jesus, for what he has done for us so that we could be made new and be called citizens and ambassadors and princes and princesses within the kingdom of heaven, a right we could never earn, but one that was freely given at the highest cost. So Lord, we bring all these things to you and we pray for them. In Jesus' powerful